Okay, here we go. Mm -hmm. Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, a popular resistance broadcast of hot news out of the region in partnership with Black Alliance for Peace Haiti America's team, Code Pink, Common Frontiers, Council on Hemispheric Affairs, Friends of Latin America, Interreligious Task Force on Central America, Massachusetts Peace Action, and Task Force on the Americas, we broadcast Thursdays at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on YouTube Live, including channels for The Convo Couch, Popular Resistance, and Code Pink. Post-broadcast recordings can be found at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Telegram, radindymedia.com, and now under podcasts at popularresistance.org. Today's episode burying 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine. And I'm really pleased for all of you uh, to meet our guest today, um, activist, friend, and Venezuelan Vice Minister of Foreign Relations for North America, Carlos Ron. He's joining us live from Chile this evening. And um, we're going to have him talk to us about the Monroe Doctrine, specifically focusing on um, South America and what Simon Bolivar experienced in his life and, and how this whole uh, U.S. foreign policy has extended um, through today. And so let me give you all just a brief background as to what uh, the context of, of the Monroe Doctrine is. I'm sure most of you know, but um, let me just do this for educational purposes. The Monroe, uh, excuse me, the Monroe Doctrine first articulated by U.S. President James Monroe on December 2nd, 1823, making this year 200 years, is a United States foreign policy position that opposes European colonialism in, Western, in the Western Hemisphere. It holds that any intervention in the political affairs of the Americas by foreign powers is a potentially hostile act against the United States. The doctrine was central to American foreign policy for much of the 19th and early 20th centuries. The doctrine remains in place today as a pillar of US foreign policy towards Latin America and the Caribbean and no longer exclusively applies to European powers. So welcome, Carlos. Really wonderful to have your time today. <laughs> I'm very glad to be here. So maybe uh, for the audience, we should start with um, with eighteen twenty three and what that what that meant for South America and the Caribbean. Well, I'll leave it. Maybe I'll even start even a bit earlier than that. Um, but you know, I think we have to um, we have to think about. Um, the foundations of the United States of America mm -hmm. and the the ideologies that came forth with with uh you know with the success of 13 colonies uh that, that managed to break away uh from the British crown and form you know a new republic in a sense um the process of independence was different uh from North and South America something we don't really you know usually talk about but it's different in the sense that, you know, the, they were sort of inverted in order. Uh, you had a, a, you really had a, a break, uh, you know, uh, when, when the pilgrims came to North America and, and, and then all the other colonies started to be, uh, you know, settled. 
they, they were really already breaking off from their relationship to the crown and starting a new society. So when, when they arrived in Plymouth Rock in 1620, you basically had an independent group of people that really had you know, little ties to the crown, except for the fact that they were nominally you know, subject to the crown, but they were, they were pretty much on their own. They, they, were, they were almost expelled from Britain because yeah. of religious uh, purposes. And they started to settle, you know, their own way of uh, organizing and, and, and their own, uh, you know, that self-ruling system, which later then, you know, started to, you know, on a process of uh, um, growth and exploration, conquest, really, mm -hmm. when they started, you know, going against the native uh, uh, um, populations. And when the crown, you know, centuries later realized, you know, hey, these people can tribute to us, then they tried to, you know, say, hey, you, you know, you should have a relationship with us. We should be able to tell you what to do. And basically, you know, they, they broke off and said, no way, you know, we're already doing our own thing. So, and that's where, you know, the, the declaration of independence comes about. But the process really had already taken place. Yeah. It had already started as an independent, you know, sort of organization. Um, in in the Spanish colonies, it was different. In the Spanish colonies, Spain came in. The crown came in. The crown conquered. The crown settled. You know, the crown, mm -hmm. the crown began the process. And then it was then that you know the people already you know felt that they needed to, you know, organize, break away. It was it was a backward uh, uh, sort yeah. of uh, process, but what that gave the U.S. was an advantage over you know uh, being able to already develop you know its its own political organization, being able to already develop you know its uh, means of production, independent mm -hmm. from the crown. We didn't have that. We it was actually in 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 the in, you know in the south it was it was basically just. Uh, you know, centuries of exploitation, just going in, grabbing the gold, grabbing the silver, grabbing the, you know, the pearls, grabbing everything that was here, taking it back to, to Europe, you know, not, and, and not really for Spain, by the way, Spain, Spain became impoverished, impoverished because of this process, because the different kings that ruled, and kings and queens that ruled Spain at, at, at different points in time, um, they really didn't invest that uh, fortune in Spain, but rather uh, place it in the European banks. So actually, the you know the the, the countries that no the countries the countries that actually become stronger because of of this uh, exploitation is the countries that have the banks like like Great Britain, basically, mm -hmm. not Spain. It's it gets to a point where Spain actually you know becomes so indebted and 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 didn't because because Spain is basically putting all the muscle and pay, paying for the soldiers to be there, but mm -hmm. not really investing back that money. So so that's when the, you know the crown starts facing uh, you know uh, some problems, uh, and that is when you know it, it becomes uh, you know it goes it's so crazy that they start selling titles of nobility. You know they were, they were doing anything they could in order to you know revive uh their their economy that decay you know is something that would, would eventually uh in in the earlier parts of the 19th century is what's going to help 
the independence movements uh, in, in South America. You have a demoralized uh, army, you have a, you know, a, a poor country, and it's, it's just, it just gave way for independence movements in South America and, and Central America to move forward. Now, this is important because, see, at these times, you know, these, there, there's these uh, um, uh, thought currents going through the United States saying, look, we developed, we, you know, became a republic. We are ahead of, of you know, uh, of this region. And, you know, you combine these, uh, these ideas of exceptionalism that the U.S. Mm -hmm. still holds where, you know, you combine manifest destiny or more, there's there's a, a train of thought where you say, well, you know, the United States, since it was able to develop earlier and to develop stronger, we have, it is our destiny to show the way to the rest of the countries. We must lead. We are the natural leaders. Everybody has to follow us kind of thing. Or you have another set of uh, ideas where you have principles such as, the, you know, the white man's burden and, and, and uh, this idea that, you know, we have to do this because you know poor, underdeveloped countries they weren't able to do so. Uh, you know we we have a we should help them out. You know uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, idea. In both cases, what what you have is again you know U.S. exceptionalism and a complete disregard for Latin Americans' capability of doing things for themselves. I say this because back in 1786. Just 10 years after the independence, um, there's a famous letter that, you know, Thomas Jefferson uh, writes when he's somehow asks, you know, why doesn't the U.S. do anything else, anything more to help the, you know, the Spanish colonies free themselves and become independent republics? And the, re the reply that Jefferson gives in 1786 is our confederacy, I'm quoting, our confederacy must be viewed as the nest from which all America, North and South, is to be peopled. We should take care to not think it for the interests of that great continent to press too soon on the Spaniards. Those countries cannot be in better hands, meaning us colonies in the hands of the yeah. Spanish crown. My fear, says Jefferson, is that they are too feeble, the Spanish, they are too feeble to hold them till our population can be sufficiently advanced to gain it from them piece by piece. Now, this is the founding oh. father, you know, one of the, the guy who writes, uh, <laughs> you know, the Declaration of Independence, you know, right. he's telling you right off, you know, we you know, we don't see anything wrong with Spain, with Spain holding these republics. We just, we're just waiting until we're strong enough to take it from them. Right. So from the beginning, we're... the perspective from the North is this belongs to us. We developed mm -hmm. earlier, so we have the right or we have the duty, whatever you want to, you know, see yeah. it as, to control this hemisphere. This is later reproduced by all these founding fathers throughout you know the rest you know the 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 rest of the latin american war of independence and then you see this you know this this uh this uh doctrine or the, you know the speech that monroe gives again these are all you know uh, people that 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 lived around yeah, the same time they're all the same all the same clan <laughs> right and this is the moment but monroe says you know um 
by the way, there's, there was a lot of exchanges between Monroe and Jefferson on issues regarding, you know, the region. Uh, and for example, uh, you know, uh, one of the things uh, Jefferson said to Monroe was, you know, I think the most important thing here is Cuba. We've always seen Cuba, you know, we've always seen, the, uh, I always, I've always thought, says Jefferson, that, you know, the most interesting thing we can do with Cuba is an exit. You know, uh, this is this is already seen, you know, uh, from yeah. the start. So what I'm getting at is this is nothing new. This is not this, this not nothing only this is new. nothing new. Nothing new. This is this is a this is a projected plan from the founding of the United States, and it's yeah. not going to change unless unless you know you have a you you have one or two things, either Latin Americans renounce completely to you know their independence and their and their you know expectations of being a sovereign continent or the united states you know uh, adopts something different from an imperialist uh, perspective on the region and that's why you know those things haven't happened those two things neither of those two things have happened in the 200 years of history that we have uh with the monroe doctrine and i don't think it, you know that will happen soon in in any case i i'm, I'm more hopeful that you know Things in the United States which some someday change because people in the United States, you know, uh, take control and 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 sort of you know change that the attitude of of the government. Then you know Latin Americans basically just renouncing to any you know uh, possibility of having a future or a destiny. Now, this is as early as I said, as 1786. Meanwhile, you know, this is the same year that Francisco de Miranda, who's the precursor of Latin American independence. Who's a very important figure, because he, you know, he first he was a, a wonderful, uh, you know, um, uh, military uh, uh, strategist. He fought in the U.S. Uh, yeah. in the American Revolution. He fought in the French Revolution, and he basically, you know, leads or begins the movement of independence South America. The flags that you see, yellow, blue, red, in Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador today were his design. The name Colombia is his. Mm -hmm. Uh, making uh, so he, so he in in the same year that Jefferson is writing the letter that you know that I read to you he is out in as far as Greece and Turkey trying to find help trying to find support for an uh, expedition to free the Latin American or the South American uh, and Caribbean colonies Monroe in the early you know 1800s Monroe. Uh, while Miranda, Miranda took 40 years of his life to do this, to yeah. try to get support from, for, for you know, Latin American independence, Monroe is ambassador in Great Britain. And he writes, and he knows of Miranda going about, and he writes to the British Council, be careful, this man is crazy. This man is dangerous. Don't help this man. <laughs> so, see, wow. the idea that the Monroe Doctrine was somehow established in 1823 in order to safeguard the, the independence of the South American republics is not true. What they were trying to say for was, was, you know, the possibility that the United States would not have any competition in the region. And this competition was not only, you know, of, of the classic European colonial powers that we know, Germany, uh, Holland at that time, uh, France, Britain, but also, uh, you know, you have the, the case of Russia. Russia, as we all remember, you know, used to own Alaska. <laughs> and Russia was also, at the same time, in 1823, you know, it's funny that these things, you know, sort yes. of repeat themselves in history. 
But Russia at the same time was coming down from, you know, from the West, thinking or, or, or you know, the, the, there, was, there was some, at least some uh, possibility that Russia might expand out to, you know, to what today is, you know, uh, uh the west of canada and 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 of uh california and so forth mm -hmm. and washington oregon and california so you know the it was it was also a message to the russians as you know st stay there don't go so you know don't don't go any further that we you know we have control over this uh region this so, is can yes. i just make, interrupt for a moment just for the audience because this is i think it's just really important you've mentioned russia be, because for those of us who grew up in the Western United States, specifically California, but the, the Northwest in general, and also the Southwest, that in 1823 was all part of Mexico and Spain. And Russia had expanded its fur trade all the way down to Fort Ross, which is the Sonoma, it's on the, what is today the Sonoma coast of California. And so you had both. Spain and Russia to the West. And the United States wanted the country to be Atlantic to Pacific. Mm. And so you had all of that going on in the Western part yes. of the Americas as well. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And when you start and, and, dissecting and again, it the way you are, it's really fascinating to see all the, no, the there was a lot of things, there was a lot of movement at the time. Yeah. That we don't we don't think to you know we don't, we don't think uh, it happened, but you know again it's, it's part of the way we learn history. We, we kind of think that these places were you know blanks on a map, and then they started getting <laughs> just in, like you know? colonizing. Uh, yes, uh, and then people. But came the in. geopolitics at the time was but really the geopolitics were, yeah, were, yeah. Were, were there as well, and 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 you had and and what you don't you don't have now is that you know at that time the United States didn't have control of the whole you know. Right. Uh, 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 sea to shining sea kind of thing, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You had you had the you know they only had there, there was contention there. So, and 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 you know and the reason uh, you know there there are things as as fantastic as you know uh, Florida is first you know freed by you know Bolivar's army. Yes. You know, there was an expedition that went north to Florida. They took over Amelia Island. And then there was, you know, the, the, you know, there, there, there was a there's a contention there with the United States and 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 Spain and you know and, and try to reconquer the area and so forth. But you know, these these times were times where things were more evened out. But as war basically depleted, you know, the South of resource mm -hmm. humor. I mean, Venezuela lost half of its population. I mean, think about that. Half of the country's population fighting a war of independence. Wow. So, you know, you had a broke, of course. Yeah. And then you and then, you know, all your resources taken away, you know, that you're in the middle of a war. Reconstructing after that is very difficult, which was not, like I said, the pattern of development that the United States had. Right. The United States had an advantage over the rest of the yeah. region. And that's why it, it was able to grow faster. So then because it knew that this was going on, it had to it had to gain control over these resources. See, when you look at the history of the Monroe Doctrine, you have several corollaries, which are, you know, small adapts, adaptations that are made out so that you can have, you know, a, a different uh, a different moments, you know, expand or explain or, or deepen uh, uh, the meaning of, of the doctrine. But 
here you, you begin to see how the United States vision, you know, just, just starts growing. It, the, the first corollary, you know, that we can mention is, is the Hayes corollary in 1880. And basically, this was an attempt to block any, any attempt from other European countries to build an interoceanic canal. There was, there was a project, there was an oh, idea sure. that you could build a canal through Nicaragua. And they, you know, and so the US would, but, and then they would lose control. If, imagine if you had the canal, you had control of both oceans. Right. That's why, that's why they, they tried, you know, they moved forward towards obtaining the, you know, the goodwill of the Colombian Congress so that they could build uh, uh, the, the, the canal through Panama. Panama at the time was part of Colombia. Yes. Now what happens? There comes a point where the Colombian Congress says, wait a minute. You can't have control of this. You know, we, it, it, this is something, if anything, you know, Colombia is, is you know, it's going to go through Colombia. So there's tensions between, you know, uh, uh, the agreement or, or the possibility of there being an agreement with the U.S. Up, about building this, uh, uh, this canal. And basically what the U.S. starts, starts doing is uh, promoting an independence movement in, in Panama. Saying, oh look, these people are being oppressed. You need, you know, we need to help them. They need their freedom. They need their, you know, democracy. Yeah. All the ideas that we know about. Well, it's like the playbook has just never changed. No, it's, it's there, it, like the two hundred year old playbook, and they haven't changed one part. That's of it. right, and that's how, and that's how no, Panama. You know, this is a process that Panama. I mean, I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there aren't, you know, original. Uh, Interests and 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 nationalist feelings and you know from the Panamanian people that that's a whole different issue, yeah. but the fact that the republic broke away was in was a separatist a movement do, had a lot to do with you know the the presence of the U.S. in the building of the canal. Yeah, yeah. You had an you had an uh, you know you had an attempt in in the eighteen eighties to to unite you know, the region with a, you know, under a U.S., a pro-U.S. or a U.S.-directed customs union. This is what they were doing because, you know, they it was, so that would benefit, you know, the U.S. In mm -hmm. 1895, I'll tell you something else, the, the only corollary, you know, they then start saying, well, the Monroe Doctrine allows us to intervene in any place that we believe um, might generate uh, a conflict or or might generate a possibility of um you know another empire coming in or another uh uh, uh international power coming in it's 1885 is, is an interesting date for venezuela because this is where this contention uh with great britain that is not that that we you know we're still carrying today with Guyana over you know this uh uh, uh territory that the venezuela uh, still claims, well, this is the moment where the United States comes in, sides with Venezuela or, or, or with the Venezuelan claim in so order to- are we to, talking about the Essequibo here? The yes, territory between yes, Venezuela yes. and Guyana, okay. Yes, this is, this, is, this is the moment where, you know, the U.S. intervenes in order to, to kick out, basically what they wanted to do was, you know, restrain the British uh, presence. But the, but it was sloppy, and not only was sloppy, it was control. It was a process that was controlled by the U.S., by U.S. Mm -hmm. interests, and not by Venezuelan interests, because we were in the middle of you know civil wars. 
So part of the reason, and you know, this is a whole, I know this is a whole different subject, but I'll, I'll just say this, part of the reason we're in this contention today with Guyana is because the treaty that was, that ends up being signed in 1899 with a lot of, you know, uh, the US intervention in the treaty was completely, you know, it was completely irregular. It wasn't done with Venezuela's, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't done for Venezuela. It was done in the name of Venezuela so that US could, you know, uh, have its uh, interests uh, play out uh, in, in the region. And that's why we, uh, to today still contest uh, that that uh, that treaty. Yeah, that In, treaty also that particular uh, piece of land is yeah. oil rich, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, that actually it's seaboard more than anything, but yes, yeah. okay, yeah, it, okay. So, bring him, you know, closer to 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 today. You know, the, in Ro Roosevelt's corollary, nineteen oh two, again. It's, it's when they say the U.S. has the right to intervene in Latin American affairs whenever a country is not able to defend or, or to keep up its, uh, its um, financial compromises. Again, it's a, it's, it's a time where Venezuela is being blocked by foreign companies trying to, um, you know, uh, uh, make us pay uh, some uh, debts and so forth. And the United States basically intervened saying, you know, we have the right to come in and, you know, organize whenever a Latin American country is not able to organize its own finances or its own, uh, you know, uh, affairs. Again, what we see, what, what we see is how this document or the, this, this doctrine became really a tool that you would stretch it, you know, every year, you know, with something different, and you justify American or U.S. I should say intervention yeah. into into any of you know the 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 internal affairs of our countries. I'll give you one. one I'll give you one last corollary, just to so you see the extent of this. In 1912, the Lodge corollary basically says that U.S. has the right to intervene even when, when, you know, when there's the possibility of foreign interventions by private interests, foreign private interests. There was a moment in that Mexico was thinking about selling part of the um, uh, Magdalena Bay, which is in, 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 um, in Mexico's uh, west coast, uh, it, it was thinking about you know privatizing basically it's part of the bay to some uh, Japanese uh, private interests and here also U.S. intervenes and breaks the deal and doesn't allow this deal to move forward because you know uh, again you know the, it, it was refusing the presence of foreign interests but not only foreign as a country or as a state but also as private interests from other countries mm -hmm. so again it's just look how look how years go on. And look how you know you're able to play with this uh, doctrine and and sort of you know shape of uh, 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 all, all, all types of interventions throughout the 20th century. This this just grew even further. The United States stabbed, you know wanted to uh, again uh, uh, have more control. Uh, over the Caribbean. So you had a series of interventions from Puerto Rico, from uh, Cuba, uh, Dominican Republic, Haiti, 
Nicaragua. In Nicaragua, you know, you, you see, Nicaragua was, was was basically private U.S. citizens going there and mm-hmm. taking over, you know, uh, land, and then the U.S. coming in as a country backing up these. You know, it's as if today, you know, I don't know, something like Blackwater type of, uh, yeah. you know. William Walker's folks. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so we'll somehow come in and you know take over land, and then you have the whole country coming in and backing, backing that up and supporting that. Yeah, um, it was it was it was the whole the whole doctrine throughout the twenty the you know the 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 end of the nineteenth century, the twentieth century, and even some of the twenty first century has been you know a tool for occupating territories: Puerto Rico, Nicaragua, Haiti, Panama appropriating you know customs like they did in the Dominican Republic taking control of the oil production like they did in Mexico like they did in Venezuela uh taking control of the mines like they did in Peru and Bolivia in Chile taking control of you know even the meat production like they did in Argentina yeah. or finances like they did in Brazil is a way you know to justify all these sorts of intervention uh against uh our our you know, region and against, you know, the, the sovereignty and the will yeah. of uh, the Latin American people. That's what, yeah. I, I, I have to, I mean, it just, I'll say this again, it's just the same. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned the Nicaragua Canal. Okay, that's still in play today. That's an incredibly hot subject now. And it's, in my opinion, and I'm sure yours as well, it's part of the whole anti-Ortega government narrative coming out of the state and out of the United States. The the foreign investment by Japan in Mexico just keep, I mean, it's, so today it's Russia, China, Iran, India, all these other foreign investments in the hemisphere that the United States is trying to push out. I I think it's it's probably too late for that, but it's, I mean, it's just, it's the same. Now the modalities vary because see you, you see during the 20th century, and this is probably the you know the most painful of, of all of these histories. I mean, just between 62 and 68, you had at least 14 coup d'etats in the region yeah. where you either had the CIA acting or you had you know outright marine invasions like in the Dominican Republic in 65. Mm-hmm. So, for humanitarian purposes, that was the yes, first well, invasion. Oh, of, of course, to promote freedom yeah. and democracy, and you know, these things. so you <laughs> know, are yeah. So, 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 really, what we see, you know, is 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 a, a very violent type of of intervention, which yeah. I think after sometime after the Vietnam War, and and after and after Chile, I would have to say, and after the coup of seventy three in Chile, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it becomes it really becomes more difficult. To it's not that it didn't happen. There were there were other, of course, there were other instances where it happened afterwards, but it became less acceptable yeah. in U.S. public opinion to have yeah. these outright, you know, violent outbursts. I mean, you had, you know, there's I, maybe because you know you, you started seeing images of these, you know, repressions and and the torture and the, you know and so, yeah. so, so which then, we don't see so be, much today. So strategies had to already start changing. Chile was was a moment, you know, it, this year is the 50th anniversary of the coup against Salvador Allende, who was a democratically elected, you know, uh, uh, leader who happened to be from the left. But what he was trying to do was, you know, a, a program that basically, you know, increased 
access to housing, you know, democratized uh, healthcare, education, uh, land reform, all these things that have been the historic needs of Latin America. This is not extra, extraordinarily revolutionary. It was revolutionary in the sense that, you know, you, you, you didn't have this before. Now you, you have somebody with the guts to, to do it. But, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, you know, privatizing. It wasn't a revolution in the sense that you were, you know, you were, you were, you were, uh, the, the state was going to expropriate everything and take over all the right. means of production. It wasn't that. It was, you know, it was a transformation, social transformation. They wouldn't have it. And they and and the attack against against Chile and against Allende was something that was com where you combine both uh, you know the military aspect and the violent aspect with other tools from the you know the the, the toolbox, the economic sanctions you know make the, the, the phrase, make the make the economy scream. Yeah. Well, we see the type of interventions that we've seen since. You know, the more time goes by, have taken that shape. See today, where we see the blockade against Venezuela, the you know the sanctions against Nicaragua, the sanctions against Cuba, these are all parts of this other type of uh, tools that the U.S. under the same principles of the Monroe Doctrine is using. You know, is 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 cutting out uh, your finance uh, possibilities. Is cutting out uh, you know the the possibility of you you know uh, uh, selling you know your products. Uh, it's it's an it's a media attack in you know fronts of you know uh, from from social media to uh, journal or you know uh, um, broadcast and print broadcast every you know every yeah. every every type uh, of information is diplomatic. I mean, you've seen the thing they try to do with Venezuela. You know, recognize somebody as a diff as a different president <laughs> in order to block you know diplomatically the country. So yeah. there's Take the embassy modalities. Different modalities, even and and you know, look out because you know there's two there's I would say two very interesting you know modalities that that we don't often look at, but there's intervention at the, in the religious sphere. Yes, missionaries and you know some that that don't have a religion don't really have a religious agenda. They have you know a subversion agenda of another type, and there's interventions in the NGO sphere. With with this idea, oh, we're we're doing humanitarian work and we're doing you know, we're trying to help people out. Basically, they're they're channeling money into uh, uh, you know subversion of democratically elected governments that are not lined up with the State Department's idea of what this region should be. So so when we think about today, you know uh, today's moral doctrine, we first of all we have to remember the vision is the same. That yeah, hasn't clearly, and I mean it's <laughs> and you, from day you, one. Day one is the same. You know, we yeah. we are seen as part of the U.S. You know, belong to U.S. The other thing that you have to see is that you know the 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 way you implement the doctrine changes. Mm -hmm. You may even have you know during the Obama administration, you had Kerry come out and say you know the Monroe Doctrine is over. This is it. You know, there's no. You know this conciliatory type of uh, discourse that that then every so often comes out, only to have Bolton reverse that when the Trump administration say, "No, we're in, we're we're promoting the Monroe 2.0." The Monroe Doctrine is alive and well. And it's <laughs> he said a that from Miami. You know, we're in a, we're in a new high tech you know type of uh, of uh, promotion. So that's that's what you really, you know, that's what we really have uh, nowadays. Now, 
Terry, one thing that I that I that I wanted to uh, uh, to to just show and 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 to comment, you know, and that we, you know, we say that there are two currents in this region. We say that there is this, you know, idea of Monroe, and we from Venezuela, but from all other countries as well, you know, we contrasted them with the ideas of Simon Bolivar, which we think are important, and, and the Bolivarianism that gave the name to the Bolivarian Revolution, to you know, to this project that Hugo Chavez has moved forward, but other people also recognize themselves in the same project, because the project that Bol what Bolivar fought for. What you know? What 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 his idea was was that this was be would be an independent region, a sovereign region. He fought for something that you know we you know he he called the equilibrium of the universe. This idea that you you have forces that have to balance each other out, that no one force should be able to you know uh, uh, overexpand or, or or impose itself over others. But that you have different poles or different, you know, regions, you know, sort of balancing their interests in order to have, which is the only way, as Bolivar described it, that you can achieve sustainable peace. Mm -hmm. Sustainable peace is not just peace that you declare because you're defeated. Sustainable peace is a peace that guarantees justice, development, and guarantees, you know, over time that, you know, uh, that peace remains in place. Now, in 1826, three years after the Monroe, Do Do Monroe Doctrine was issued, Bolivar uh, issued a call for uh, a, a Congress, the Panama Congress, where you know the, these new republics would come in and would meet. And I just want to say, and I just want to mention really quickly, just a couple of the things that were on the agenda so that you, so you get an idea of what the difference is between Bolivarianism and this Monroeism. First, you know, there was a call for uh, um, to to denounce Spain's imperialist attitude and to and to denounce the damage it had caused in the in in you know in in the Americas. By the way, the United States sent representatives to this Congress. Not because Bolivar invited them, but other, you know, Bolivar respected the decision of the Colombian Congress at the time, who did invite them. And the and, Colombian Congress at the time was what today is Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador. Yes, yes, Peru, it was United, Bolivia, it was United yeah. one, one Republic, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so Boliv and Bolivar at the time was president of Peru, because, the, you know, the, 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 the process of independence kept going, yes. you know, moving southward so he became president of peru and then you know the the the, the government of colombia took another uh decision and, and this is important because you know it's often claimed that bolivar was some sort of you know outlandish dictator that ruled and and, and you can see that despite the fact that he had founded uh colombia you know it, he allowed colombia to take its own decision in the sense colombia this does invite the united states and henry clay who is who's is the secretary of state at the time gives the instructions to the u.s representatives to go and he says there should be no denouncing of spain as you know this crime uh, uh committer uh and you should also not uh, uh, the, you know, one of the other, the, 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 as another point that Bolivar was making in, in, in the Congress was calling for the independence of Cuba, Puerto Rico, also the Canary Islands, and also the Philippines. 
uh, it, it was this movement of freedom, you know, to a of self-determination. And the United States opposed, uh, you know, they had specific instructions to oppose this uh, movement. One of, the, one of the problems, and this is interesting, but one of the problems that justified this decision by the United States was that they feared that any of these countries that would become independent could, could fall into the danger of a slave revolution like in Haiti. Yeah. And people from the South didn't want this. Yeah. So, people from the Southern United States. From the Southern United States, yes. From the Southern United States didn't want this because you know, they were still slaveholders. Yeah. So part of the, so, so and, and why do I say this? Because I have been told, you know, we've been told for 200 years that the purpose of these doctrines and the purpose of these, you know, uh, this uh, U.S. intervention in our region is because the ideas of freedom, democracy, and equality, and this bullshit. <laughs> because it's economics. It's 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 no, but it's also not true. Right. See, because you no, weren't willing to denounce the imperialism that you know on, in the region that and the crimes that were committed by Spain, you weren't willing to free the countries that were still under the subjection of you know of of, of this empires you weren't willing to free the slaves yeah so you can't really talk no, about freedom right. right because enslaved people and there was another point in bolivar's agenda for the congress was the total abolition of the of slavery in the confederated states of uh, in the new republics so when you see when you see what the two projects are there's only one project that defends human rights. There's only one project that defends self-determination. There's only one project that defends freedom and your right to choose your, your own form of government. And it's not Monroe's project. No. It was Bolivar's. It was Bolivar's. Yeah. So, you know, with, with the Panama Congress and the U.S. giving, you know, the instruction not to denounce Spain, and with Bolivar wanting to continue the liberation of the Spanish colonies, including the Philippines and, and the Canary Islands. I mean, that goes right back to what you were saying, that the United States was just waiting for Spain to become so weak they could take the colonies for themselves, which eventually they took the Philippines. I mean, it's very, oh. Oh, there you are. Okay, you're back. <laughs> Sorry, I lost you. I lost you for this. Yeah, I was saying what you you know regarding the the Panama Congress and yes. and the U.S. instructions um, not to denounce Spain and and Bolivar wanting to denounce Spain and continue freeing the remaining Spanish colonies, including the Canary Islands and the Philippines. And that goes right back to what you said earlier, where the U.S. was just waiting for Spain to be so weak it could just finish taking it the, right. the last of the empire. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. Yeah. Because yeah, and, and, and but and that's and that's actually, well, that's actually what happened. You know, when the Sp in the Spanish American War, that's that's precisely what's, what goes on. You know, you have yeah. you have uh, the United States getting control of Puerto Rico, of Cuba, and also the Philippines. So yeah. then you have and then you have that 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 allowed the U.S. to have a country, uh, you know, complete map of yeah. you know resources from the Caribbean, but also from the Pacific. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Again, global it's, it's the interests <laughs> of the growth of the United States as a, you know, as a country, as an empire. Yeah. Let me, I, I know, I know you don't have much time left. And I, I wonder if there's just one thing I can sure. have us talk about quickly. Um, 
this um, this being the 200th year, uh, 200th anniversary of the Monroe Direct in 2023. One of the things that, and you know this because I've seen you <laughs> throughout the hemisphere, <laughs> beginning in October, I would start, I mean, it started way before then, but let's like October 2020 in Bolivia with the presidential elections there and the return of the MAS to power, and then going on to the Venezuelan National Assembly elections in December of 2020, and then all through 2021, we had elections in in, uh, Nicaragua, in Ecuador, in, in Venezuela again, in Honduras, and through 2022 in Chile, in Colombia, in Brazil. And I was, as were you, we were international election observers in many, if not all of those uh, elections. To me, what I see today, having looked back at 18 months of elections, the people south of the United States, Latin America and the Caribbean voted principally for national sovereignty, Natural resource sovereignty, which your former foreign minister was so clear, Jorge Arias was always so clear at stressing natural resource sovereignty along with, with national sovereignty. And so people voted for those two things. And, and I believe they also voted for governments that were proposing an economic system beneficial to the majority of the citizens. And that could be anything from, you know, social democratic to revolutionary left. It's a, it's a spectrum of economic solutions. It's not any one. But to me, that has really uh, consolidated, um, I don't want to say liberation, because that's been, the people south of the United States have been fighting for that for 500 years. But it to me is almost as if the Monroe Doctrine is being ended in the South, South in Latin America and the Caribbean. On it, the people are ending it on their own. Anything the United States does at this point is going to be reactionary, not proactive. It's going to be a reactionary thing because the movement to absolve the Monroe Doctrine from the hemisphere is coming from the South. And I think all these electoral results really, they don't just emphasize the change in government. They emphasize what's happening on the ground with the people and how they voted, because these are constitutional changes through the electoral process. They're not hot revolutions. These are what the people have expressed at the polls that they want en masse across the hemisphere. I wish we could do it in the States. (laughs) Well, the problem is that is that you know this is actually that's actually when the Monroe Doctrine gets triggered. See, whenever yeah. it's not the first time that we've expressed our will to do one thing or the other. Again, you, you go going back to the example of Chile in '73. You know, yeah. in 1970, people elected Salvador Allende to to do precisely those things. You know, the to 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 uh, to nationalize copper to. You know, uh, to move forward in, in social programs, and then the Monroe Doctrine acted itself in one of the most vicious, you know, ways, and overthrew him and and set up a regional, you know, program called the you know the Operation Condor to basically destroy any other type of you know uh, yeah. attempts as such in the region. So what I think we should be what we have to be careful about is 
that you know whenever the you know Latin American the Caribbean reasserts itself is wherever is whenever you know the the, the doctrine goes out and, and becomes more more violent and more and, and more aggressive. So we have to be careful and, and see how you know how that is going to express itself in the next you know couple of, of years or be, because like you said you know the region is now taking an, again another turn towards the left. Yeah. I mean you we, we saw what happened at the beginning of the 20th century or 21st century. I mean, when you have the, the this first wave, when you know the people called the you know the pink tide and everything, yeah. uh, but you, you know Chavez, Lula, Evo, Correa, you know you have you have this movement going, you know, uh, towards a more um, towards a more uh, uh, like you said, cutting off you know from 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 U.S. dependency, and the reaction was you know we yeah. we hit Honduras and overthrow the government of Honduras and overthrow the government of Paraguay and then you know, try to, you know, uh, just suffocate Venezuela with sanctions. And so, and, and it's been a vicious, you know, second decade and, and you know, third decade of, 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 the, of the 21st century trying to fight that off. So we have to be careful, I think, in the sense that, you know, it, it's going to generate uh, a reaction. That's why I think at the end of the day, it is very important whatever you do in the United States and whatever people, you know, do in the United States to change that policy, because the change, we're going to have the same, we're going to have the same, you know, perspective. We're going to fight it out and we will lose some battles and we'll win others, but we, we want our self-determination. What has to change is the way the U S and the people in the U S see themselves with, you know, within the framework of, of this, of this uh, doctrine. That's why the U.S. has to say, you know, this is not who we are. These are not our values. These are not what we stand for. This is not the type of relationship we want. In a world that we're, you know, where we're threatened by, you know, a nuclear holocaust, we're threatened by, you know, famine, where we're threatened by, you know, uh, uh, climate change that, there's going, that who knows what's going to, how it's going to affect us. We have to look towards cooperation. We have to look towards solidarity. We have to look toward other types of values, not towards this crazy attempt of dominating Latin American and Caribbean resources in order to benefit, you know, just a small group in the United States. It's up to, I think that's where the responsibility comes in place for the movements and the people of the United States to, you know, struggle to change that policy and change that relationship and you'll be surprised you know when you study latin american history you realize that a lot of movements especially during the cold war which wasn't cold in in latin america as a hot war in latin america right. yeah but during, yeah, yeah. during that period called the cold war there were a lot of countries that there were a lot of movements that were not you know anti-American, they were not, you know, they were not even communist. Uh, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to say, for example, that Jacobo Arbenz in 1954 was a communist leader in, you know, in Guatemala, but he was trying to do a land reform and the United States blocked it. Every time there has, every time that you see, you know, a, a, an attempt at justice for Latin America, the United States comes in and you know, has sort of, you know, uh, pushed that out, possibility out. So it has to, it, there has to be a point where the United States, the people in the United States say, this isn't what we stand for. This is not what we want. This is not where we, where we want our resources to be spent. 
you know, we want a different type of relationship with, uh, you know, one of cooperation. And you'll be surprised how much, how much of a positive reaction you will receive from this continent. Well, I, I just want to, just for the audience, um, you know, the push, the pushback from the United States, the aggressiveness when you mentioned, you know, our Benz and Guatemala wanting land reform. And, and now today you see like in the past month, the progressive narrative that they, well, and it's getting exceedingly more progressive from Mexico, from the president of Mexico, and this really strong anti-AMLO narrative coming yeah. out of the States now. Of course, you know, Mexico's getting ready to go into presidential elections. <laughs> so the timing is not, you know, because mm -hmm. AMLO's pretty much saying the same things he said since he was mayor of Mexico City. Right. But going into the elections in 2024, you've getting this really, really strong anti-AMLO narrative out of the states. So, you know, it's always something. There's always always that pushback from the states to maintain control and maintain its model and its its hegemony of the hemisphere and, and most of the global south. I would would um, the intervention in Africa is, is extraordinarily aggressive as well. But I'm really. I, I am happy you still have faith in the American people to make change because I think we do too. And um, I just want to tell the audience there's a really great uh, forum that's going to be taking place uh, the 28th and 29th in Washington, D.C., 28th and 29th of April. It's a Latin American uh, policy forum, and it's uh, called Bearing 200 Years of Monroe Doctrine, and it's about... Uh, it'll be four panels in discussion of the, the panels are theme based, not country based. One panel is on sanctions, so there'll be a very um, in-depth conversation on Venezuela attached to that that panel. But it will talk about U.S. policy towards the region and also offer from uh, Latin America and the Caribbean alternatives, what the people have created for themselves outside of the United States. And so it's an extraordinarily uh, important time for that forum and a good opportunity if you can go to, to DC and and physically attend, uh, terrific. Otherwise um, it will be live stream. You can participate that way, way as well. You can register for the live or uh, um, virtual event at americaspolicyforum.org. And I will put that in the chat. It's also in the program notes. Um, on the YouTube channel. So just give a plug for that because it's a great time for uh, people in the United States and outside the United States to exchange ideas and what's possible, what needs to happen to create uh, a peaceful hemisphere, a peaceful world, I, I would say. So, so Carlos, I know I kept you way over your allotted time. <laughs> I, I, I apologize, sort of. <laughs> Oh, I'm always so happy to have your time and you're so insightful and, uh, you know, everything you shared with us for this episode is just really so important for us all to hear and learn from. And I'm really grateful for that. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And you know, this is very, uh, this, I, I like, I like talking about this because it, it you know, it's a, it's, it's a way of seeing the whole picture, you know. Yeah. Uh, you often don't get a chance to 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 see it, put put everything in that framework, and it's really, I think, it's really important so that we can really understand, you know, the story of the relationship between, you know, our regions. But yes, always happy to be here.
Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy you had time for the episode. So, uh, and I love the Monroe versus Bolivar. Yeah, I mean that just is perfect. In, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And very uh, for people to understand and uh, and and the difference between the two is really paramount for the region. So, uh, so thank you again. And I just want to thank the audience. Thank we had a really nice. A live turnout for you this evening. So, um, so for the audience, uh, you've been watching What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, we're a popular resistance broadcast. You can find us every Thursday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on YouTube Live on the Convo Couch, Code Pink, and Popular Resistance YouTube channels post-broadcast. Recordings can be found on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, so thank you again, Carlos. And for the audience, we'll see you next Thursday. Take care.